We are studying the book of James. James, uh, if you've not been here yet, I review every week who James was. All I can say is go back online to Facebook Live weeks back um, or on our website to May 16th. We spent a whole Sunday telling you who James is. Basically, he's the half-brother of Jesus who did not believe until after Jesus died and rose again like he said he would. Then James became a believer. Then James became a follower of Jesus and a leader in the early local church. He ended up being probably the lead pastor, you could, could say in today's terms, the lead pastor of the Church of Jerusalem. And he also wrote, not only did he minister and lead the Jews that became Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, but because Jewish people had been scattered for hundreds of years through captivity, he wrote letters to all the Jewish people scattered everywhere else. He wrote a letter to them, kind of telling them from afar what he wanted them to know. So his audience has always been Jewish believers in Jesus, which is not every Jew. A lot of the Jews rejected Jesus. But those who came to believe in Jesus, James wrote to them. Or if they were in Jerusalem, he may have pastored them. So in this case, he's writing a letter, and we're studying the letter he wrote. The letter has been divided by us into five chapters, and today we're going to finish chapter three together. And we only have a few verses to look at today, so because of that, I'm going to take a few minutes to kind of set the stage for the verses that we're going to see. Because here's what you need to understand. If James ever seems like he's pointed, like he's kind of preachy, and he's like, man, he's like all in their, you know, in their, their business with his lecturing about how to live— it's because he knew what he was working with. James knew what he was up against. So uh, here's some context. I told you a minute ago that the Jewish people had been scattered for hundreds of years since the years of, of the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, and many of them never came home. They stayed where they were. They built businesses and enterprises where they lived. And they eventually, most of the Jewish people would assemble if not in someone's house, if there was enough Jews in that city, they would actually build a synagogue there wherever they lived. And that synagogue would be a place for all the Jews in that city or that region to gather together where they could do a lot of things together as a Jewish community no matter where they lived in the general countries roundabout. And in those synagogues, the, the, they would use them for gatherings during the week, commerce sometimes, and business. They would do... Um, uh, political things, if there was anything they could do in that front to talk about things back home in Jerusalem or Judea. But they would also take the first day of the week and have a religious gathering. Remember in, in the Hebrew culture, the last day of the week, the seventh day of the week was Saturday. That was a day of rest. You don't do anything on Saturday. You rest. But on the first day of the week, they'd gather for worship, and they would go to their scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures that we call the Old Testament. They would go to them, and they would, if they had them, they would read them, read from them or from a portion of them if they didn't have all of it. They would read from them, and they would um, study them, and they would worship together on the first day of the week. And then the, the, the synagogue that they would build there could be used beyond that. The problem is that over those hundreds of years, what happened with them is what happens with religion almost always. It drifts off point. And eventually, they still talked the God game and looked at the scriptures and memorized them, but they also had gotten so, you know, business and political and also all the other things that go into just humanity, just the, the stuff that comes up between people. That, that sometimes the synagogues were not always the wholesome places but they operated in the name of God. And before we dump on them, 2,000 years into Christianity in America, I don't think we're doing a whole lot better. The American church in the last few decades has turned into a, 
Uh, for some people, it's the political wing of their, of their favorite party. For others, it's um, a place to fight for titles and positions like, a little, like it's a subdivision meeting. And for others, it's all sorts of silly things. And sometimes church can denigrate off of its point if we're not careful. Where what will happen is we'll keep the religious trappings in the God talk, but, but turn it into something other than just a spiritualized version of bad human behavior. That should not happen, but it does. And the people who do that spiritualize that bad behavior as if it's a virtue. And so that's what they were doing back then. And James knew that. He knew that was happening. And that's not a Christian problem. That's not a religious problem. That's a human problem that religious people are not exempt from, and neither are Jesus followers. Even though Christianity is not meant to be a religion, oftentimes we take something as beautiful as a relationship with Christ, and we let those religious things take over. So James is trying to help these Jewish people, not just the ones that lived in his city that he pastored, but the ones who lived all over these other cities and countries. He's writing them a letter to say, guys, listen, you got the right belief in Jesus now, but you have tradition and, 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 and from your synagogue behavior that we don't want to take with us into Christianity. You got, you got customs that are not wholesome you need to leave some of that, those religious trappings behind because they're not really religious, not really Jesus stuff. They're not really God stuff. They're just stuff stuff. So he's going to try to, and, and by the way, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I referenced a couple of stories yesterday. I don't want to get into them all for sake of time or last Sunday. But let me remind you that one time Jesus went into, the, went into one of these synagogues. There was no synagogue in Jerusalem because the temple was in Jerusalem. But if you lived in a different city, you didn't have a synagogue. And Jesus went into the synagogue back in his hometown of Nazareth, and he said a few words during the public speaking time. And before he was done speaking, they were so mad, they tried to take him outside and throw him off a cliff. Now, I want to think about that for a minute. Think about gathering for your worship service the first day of the week as a religious person, and you come together for your service, and before it's over, you try to throw someone off a cliff. Something's wrong with the DNA of your worship, okay? Paul went through the same thing. Paul would travel from place to place and he would, he would, um, would preach. But what's crazy is sometimes he would go to a city and they would welcome him, but they'd then watch all the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people kind of magnet towards him. And the Jewish people in the synagogue would become jealous when the whole building was full the next week because Paul had the crowd. they get jealous. And so they would decide they hated Paul. They would turn against him. And sometimes violently, one time they dragged him out into the city streets and stoned him thought he was dead, and left him there in the ground, and he ended up surviving. Imagine going to Sunday morning service in your synagogue, religiously, and before it's over, you take a guy in the street and you try to kill him with rocks. That's what happened in that context. So, so again, something's off with the religion when people behave that poorly in the name of God. And James is looking at these Jews who had become believers in Jesus, and these guys, guys, listen, I get it. I know our context. I know how we can get Listen, fellas, ladies, listen, don't bring that into Christianity. Don't bring that, that, that atmosphere and those politics and that strife. We don't need that. That's not what God's really about. That's what man is about sometimes in the name of God, but that's not what God's about. So that makes sense of a lot of things he's said the past many weeks. And today, just a few verses that are transitionary to get us into the next part of the book. But we need to take a few minutes to look at them still. They're good. So we're going to begin in James chapter 3 and verse 13 today. James knows what buttons to push. He begins by saying this, if you are wise, I love that. He just starts, if you, he said, he's going to talk about what real wisdom is today. He says, if you are wise, 
Because no doubt someone in the audience reading the letter was like, oh, that's me. I'm wise. Because everyone kind of thinks they're wise, you know. We're smarter than the average bear. We, 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 we sometimes we think, you know, we're like, um, I don't know how many times in my years of ministry I've heard people explain to me how that they, Arlen, or pastor, if they call me that, Arlen, I, I just have a special, I, can, I have a gift of discernment. I really can discern people. I can tell someone I knew they were a good person. I knew that person was not. I mean, I can just tell because I'm just good at this stuff. Everyone and their brother thinks they're just specially extra good at figuring everything out because we're just all full of ourselves, I think. And I, I just, I knew that person, oh, they got in trouble. I knew they were trouble when they walked in, you know. So anyhow, uh, but they, so everyone thinks they're wise. And James says, okay, fine, listen. You're human and now you're religious. And so you say, I'm really wise. If you are wise, if that's true, and, and if you understand God's ways, which again, everyone there would say, well, that would be me. Imagine sitting in the audience when the letter's being written. If you are wise and understand God's ways, oh, <clears throat> he's, he's speaking to me. You see, I've memorized a lot of verses through the years. I know a lot of, I know a lot of stuff. And I kind of, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I got God figured out pretty well. I got a corner on that issue. If you are wise, James says, if you understand God's ways, prove it. Prove it. I love that. If you were with us a couple weeks ago when I was gone and Anthony preached from the end of, of, of chapter 2, James said something similar. He said, faith without works is dead. Like, you say you have faith without works? How can I know that? But James said, I will show you or prove to you my faith by my works. Like, in other words, and now he's talking about wisdom. He says, we can say we have faith. We can say we're wise. We can say a lot of things. But that's just talk. That's just self-inflation. James says, prove it. Prove it. How? Prove it by living an honorable life. By living an honorable life. He says, look, we, the last thing a broken world full of broken people who do bad things needs is people operating under the name of God as wise and understanding God's ways and religious. They have all those trappings, but they mistreat their spouse. They mistreat their children. They mistreat their parents. They mistreat their neighbors. They cheat in business. They embezzle. They, they uh, uh, have sexual sins that they hide and that they, that upon others. And then worse than they cover them up. And all sorts of things are happening. Stop. He says, live an honorable life. Listen, if you really want to do this thing right, if you want to honor God, and if you want to do what we're trying to accomplish here, you got to prove this. Live an honorable life. That's what matters. Not what you think you know or what you think, how much, how, how discernful you feel you are. Prove it by living an honorable life. And then he adds this, by doing good works. Do good works. Again, back to the other sermon. He says that in chapter 1, he said, don't just be hearers, be doers. Do good works. Faith without works is dead. Like it's, it's really ultimately what we do. It's, it's what Jesus did. When Jesus walked this earth and he left, they summarized his life in Acts chapter 10 or 11 by saying, Jesus of Nazareth who went about doing good. Jesus is like, man, you want to you do this? Do, prove it by doing good works. And then he says this, with the humility with the humility that comes from wisdom. And that's a good statement right there. Because let's just, let's just be, be candid. Um, it's easy to get proud if you think you're doing well. But, but wisdom, true wisdom, will bring humility. If I understand what God has done for me, if I understand what God has done in my life, then I can, I can have a lot of gratitude and a lot of humility. 
if I realize that I'm not perfect and you're not perfect and, and I don't get to head it with God because I'm better than somebody else or better than my neighbor, but I'm a sinner who needs a savior like everybody else. And Jesus died for my sins because I need the redemption and the ground is level at the cross and he has reached out to me and I've received his grace. God's grace ought to bring gratitude out of me and it ought to bring a humility, a humility that makes me do my good works without thinking that makes me better than that can do good works with humility because I know that God's goodness has changed my life and the ground is level. And James says if we're wise, we'll get this, we'll live honorably, we'll do good works and we'll have a humility in all of it that wisdom brings. We're talking about wisdom. And then he says in verse 14, he says, but if you are bitterly jealous and if there is selfish ambition in your heart, those two words in yellow we put there because I wanted you to remember them because in the next couple verses, James uses those same two ideas three times. So this is kind of a big point for him. Jealousy and selfishness. He uses those two ideas three times in the next couple of verses. He says, if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, now let me pause there and kind of talk, talk about what those, that is. Selfish ambition means people who would gather together, and these are religious people, Jesus-following people in this case, but they, but they had selfish ambition. Now, ambition is not bad. Ambition to make things better, to, to do good, to make the world a better place. But sometimes our ambitions are selfish. I want to get ahead. I want to get the big raise. I want to make more money than everybody else. I want to live better. I want to have the promotion. I want to have the title in my company, in my church. I want to have whatever it may be. I want the title. I want the promotion. I want the praise. I, want, I have selfish ambition. I'm in a, I'm in a race against others. I'm, I'm, I'm looking to get ahead. And the problem with being selfish in our ambition is that when others are doing the same thing or they're not, but they're the ones getting ahead of us, jealousy sets in. Then we get bitter. We're like, well, why did they get that position? Why did they get that race? Why did they get that opportunity? Why did they get that recognition? Not me. Bitterness and jealousy sets in when we're driven by selfish ambition. And James is saying to his guys, guys, I know that you think you're wise, you think you understand God's ways, but guys, listen. Prove it. And if there's bitterly jealous and selfish ambition going on in your hearts, he says this, don't cover up the truth. Don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. And that's such an important statement. Don't cover up the truth. Because that's what church is for so many people. Including back then in those days, before Jesus in, in the religious synagogue gatherings. But it's true for us today. You know what? There's a word that someone used one time. I think it's a, it was a Casting Crown song lyric referring to what we do as being a, a stained glass masquerade. It's a stained glass masquerade. We can come in and we know how to look the part. We know how to put on a facade that other people see and say, ooh, look at him, look at her. They're good Christians. But we're covering up what's really going on. What, what, what no one sees is, aren't we glad that you know, people don't know everything? You ever think about, aren't you glad that when you're walking around and you're smiling and you're being so wonderful that there were little dot, dot, dot thought bubbles showing your thoughts to the whole world? And, and, and half the stuff in our lives, we probably like, man, I don't want anyone to know that I was angry about that or I said those words or I thought that thought or whatever. And so sometimes, if we're not careful, we'll get good at putting on a facade, a spiritual facade, a stained glass masquerade, while there's something like perhaps selfish ambition and bitter jealousy that's driving us but we don't show that because that wouldn't go over. We show the things that get us praise, get us recognition, get us promotions and titles and honor and impression. 
James is like, listen, don't cover up the truth. Don't cover it up. Make a statement here. Listen carefully. No wise person, no wise person tries to fool themselves or others. No wise person tries to fool themselves or others. It's just not wise. In fact, it's, it's destructive. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why it's destructive to put on our facades. Because when I come into a gathering where we're supposed to be following Jesus and making him the hero of the story and we all need him, and I come in to impress you with my facade, two bad things, will, two people get hurt. The first person is me because I'm not getting any help because everyone, no one knows the problem. So I'm not getting people who are keeping me accountable. I'm not keep getting anybody to pray for me or pray with me because I've, I've hit it. So I'm going to be destructive inside and deteriorating inside because I've covered up and I've let nobody have access to the real me. So it hurts me. But on top of that, it doesn't just hurt me. On top of that, it hurts everyone around who thinks, I can't live up to that. You know, in 20-some years of pastoring, especially in our old, I came from a fundamentalist background, and so I saw really hardcore, you know, facades of external rules of Christianity. I can't tell you how many times in my, especially in my early ministry, I saw someone say, oh, Arlen or, or, or Pastor Walters, or they would say, you know, I, I just, our marriage is struggling, and I just don't feel like, we're not like these other couples in the church whose marriages are good, our marriage is struggling. And sometimes I live and mention like so-and-so's marriage. And sometimes I'm thinking, you don't know. I know, the, I know what you don't know. They, 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 put on, they know how to go out. And they're probably fighting on Sunday morning, and they get, a, they get to church and they're all glowing. Ah, you know, uh, there's a different story going on before, before church and while they're there. Um, just because someone convinces you things are good at home doesn't mean they are. doesn't mean they're bad either. It just means that you're seeing the facade that could be telling the truth or not, but you don't know. I remember someone one time saying, I don't want to fit in at church because all the other people are such good Christians and they don't struggle. I have, I have doubts about stuff. And I'm like, good. If, if you can't have doubts at church about, if we can't come to church and say, hey, I have major doubts about everything, what, who are we, what are we trying to do here, man? That's what, you got to be able to safely come and, 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 week and, week, and week out forever as long as it takes for, to, to, to work through that without feeling like you got to somehow check a bunch of boxes about your behavior and your beliefs to come to church. If that's what church is, we need to stop doing it. It's like saying go to the hospital once you get better. We're all coming here flawed in our thinking and, and my doubts and my fears and my bad behaviors. So, but someone once would say, you know, I don't fit in there because I'm not like all these great Christians around me who they have stronger faith or they b behave better. And sometimes they'd point out so-and-so is such a great Christian. And I'm like, so-and-so got you fooled. Okay, they do. And that's because they're bad. I wouldn't tell anyone something like that. I wouldn't say that to somebody. But I'm thinking, we are really good at faking out everybody else about how awesome we are. And so when we put on our stained glass masquerade, we don't get real. We hurt ourselves because no one's helping us. And we hurt each other. And that's not helping. We got to get real. We gotta open up. We gotta, that's why I think it's good to get, we got a couple, we had a growth group going right now, and we have another one starting soon, and another one we're trying to get together for the fall. We gotta get people in, in out of rows and into circles because it's important that we start doing life and being honest with each other and saying, hey, here's what's going on. Being real. Let's keep going. James says, for jealousy, and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. He says, I'm sorry. 
That might, be, that might be the wise thing to do to operate with jealousy and selfishness under the surface. That might be the wise thing for you to do to get by with your facade. But that's not, that's not wisdom in God's eyes. Such things, actually such things, are earthly, or that word earthly means worldly. So in the religious culture I grew up in, worldly usually meant all the cultural th- preferences that I have and don't like and do like about culture. But worldly in, in, in the Bible is oftentimes something very different. In this case, he's saying jealousy and selfishness in our hearts is worldly. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. And it's demonic even. It's so not God, it's the other thing. And then, verse 16, he says this. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, you will find disorder and evil of every kind. And you know, we know this is true, don't we? Take me to any business, any job, any company, any organization, any church where you have people inside who are jealous or selfishly ambitious. And you will have disorder going on. Every single time there will be disorder. There will be evil of every kind being covered up and swept under the rug. And there will be all sorts of bad stuff happening. It will be a mess because there is wrong heart driving the organization on that level. And James is warning us. What he's saying ultimately is this. You can't fix a bad inside with a good outside. A stained glass masquerade doesn't solve the problem. It might fool other people and make me think, hey, I'm okay. No reason to change. No one knows. But I'm not going to fix anything. I can't... I can't fool you into my, and, and, and then ultimately fool, fool my way by fooling you into a better future for me. If my inside's messed up and I'm, I'm fooling everybody else on the outside, I can't fix it. At some point, what's on the out, inside is going to come to the outside. And then, and then when all that comes out eventually, people are going to go, what? I had no idea. I had no idea because I was faking it, but I wasn't making it. And so... You gotta, you gotta, James is saying wisdom, wisdom. Wisdom says, start with the inside. Quit trying to impress everybody out here and go inside first and say, what's really going on in here? Now, he's gonna shift gears for the last two verses of this, of this chapter. James is gonna say, now that we've addressed the problem, let's talk about what true wisdom really is. Ready? Verse 17. But the wisdom from above, the wisdom from above is first of all pure. I love that. Because what James is saying is wisdom from above, what's on the outside and what's on the inside match. There's not two different things going on. It's pure. Because sometimes we can start off doing the right things for the right reasons, but after a while we get proud. Or perhaps we do the right things and it gets us promotion. We do the right things and it gets us recognition. It gets us opportunity. And then we start doing the right things for the wrong reasons. But James says, be careful that we don't let the inside become corrupt while the outside is a facade because it's got to be pure. It's got to be the same on the inside and the outside. The wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It's also peace-loving. Now, peace-loving means, let me explain what peace-loving means because a lot of people talk about peace. Everyone wants world peace. But most people mean they want the world to be at peace with them and do it their way. There's a lot of entire countries, and I'm not saying... I'm not going to get into this, but we want world peace and we will conquer and destroy your country and kill whoever we have to kill to get it, you know. Uh, we want peace. I mean, right? I mean, look, we know people who do this all the time in their, in their relationships. I want peace. As long, I mean, peace in my marriage means you do what I want you to do. We have no peace. We'll have peace if you'll get in line. If you'll stand where you ought to stand. We'll have peace. I want peace. I want you to do what I want you to do. 
You've seen political leaders who, as long as you're loyal to them, it doesn't matter if they do wrong or horrible things, as long as you're loyal to them, they're fine, but if you don't, they'll destroy you. We don't need people in any level, in any part of our lives, who are, who are thinking peace means make me feel happy and good and, and cater to me. Peace loving means a lot we're going to see in the next part of this verse. But let me pause and say this. It means that when you and I are at an odd moment, I don't have to win or destroy you for bothering me. And if I see people at odds with each other, I don't win by dividing and conquering. I don't win by dividing and conquering between people. You all know those people in life who they always buddy up to somebody to get at somebody else. Maybe you grew up with a sibling who used to do this in your house when you were growing up. Or perhaps in high school there was that person that did this in high school. Or perhaps there's adults that are 35 or 40 years old or older and they do this at your job still because they never grew up. They like to get, they get at odds with somebody so they buddy up to somebody else to have strength in numbers to get somebody. Of course, eventually they get mad at that person too, so they butt into the other person to get at that person because they're just playing the game. And they let people at odds with each other and they're always the good guy and they play the game both ways. Peace-loving means I don't de demand you, I don't crush you until you give peace by submission to me, nor do I cause discord between you. I want you to get along and I don't, well, let's just keep reading here. It's peace-loving, it's gentle at all times. It's gentle. That's what, that's what God's wisdom is. It's gentle. Wait, look, look, when you're doing the right thing, you don't have to scream. It's gentle. It's gentle at all times. And willing to yield to others. I don't have to have my way. I'm not going to take my ball and go home if it's not my way. I can yield. It's not that important. I'm not more important than anybody else in the gathering. Let's be at peace. I'm not pitting people against each other for my own benefit. I'm not trying to overcome somebody else and beat my rivals. I'm not trying to have selfish ambition or bitter jealousy. I want God. See the context of what James is saying here? That bitterness and jealousy and ambition, selfish ambition, is the opposite of true wisdom, which is pure, peace-loving, gentle at all times. It's willing to yield to others. Not only that, he says, it's full of mercy. I love that one. It's full of mercy. You know what that means? That means that if, if, we're, if we're sitting there in James's audience and he's reading this letter, full, and you're reading the first part of the verse, you're not looking around saying, that's right. You're supposed to be gentle at all times and yield to others, yield to me, uh, be, you know, peace-loving. It's saying, I'm supposed to do those things. And when others fail to do those things, wisdom is full of mercy for them. That those ideals are for me to live in wisdom, and part of my wisdom is to give others mercy when they come short. If, there's a, if you've been around me for many years, you've heard me say something often, and I probably should say it more often because it's that big of a deal to me. I often say the, most, the secret mentality to relationships in general is found in the statement that I use often. I should be more expecting of me and more accepting of you. And that would solve, if one spouse did that in most marriages, that would solve a lot. And if both did it, it would be amazing. If one person at the job did that, it would be, create so much more peace at the job. If, both, if everyone did it, it would be amazing. If, I, if people could just live by the mantra, I should be more expecting of me, more accepting of you. We tend to flip them around. We tend to say, I'm more accepting of me. Hey, I had a hard day. My finger got hurt, okay? It's been tough on me lately. You don't know. So that excuses my behavior. No one's perfect. But I'm more expecting of you. You should know better. Shame on you. You should know better. 
What's wrong with you? How dare you? And we should flip that around. I should be more expecting of me. Hey, I should know better. Shame on me. I should do better. I could do better. And more accepting of you. Hey, you had a rough day probably. No one's perfect. That's okay. See, we give ourselves the grace and not others. And, and James is saying, be more expecting of me and more accepting of you. Be, be wise enough to say, I want to be pure in my motives, peace-loving, gentle, willing to yield to others. And when they don't follow suit, I'm full of mercy. For others. That's what wisdom says. It's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. And that's beautiful. I love the word fruit there. Because when we do the good things that James keeps talking about, good things produce good fruit. In fact, remember last week he talked about the tongue? And he mentions how that, you know, you can know something by the fruit that it bears. And so if, if something's good, it will produce good fruit. No matter how good it looks on the outside, the, pr- the proof is in the fruit. And if, if, we, if, we would do the, if we would just do the right thing and do good things and be the kind of people we ought to be by God's call and how we treat others and how we deal with the inside, those good deeds will bear fruit. And maybe I don't always get noticed in the moment. Maybe in the moment I yield and maybe in the time I get overlooked and maybe in the time someone else gets ahead. But in the end, when the fruit is born, time always validates us. And someone looks back and says, well, you know what? They were good. Someone looks back and says, you know, I grew up in my dad's house. Didn't always, mom's, my mom's house didn't always listen. Went my own way because I, you know, but you know what? I'll say this for my parents. They were real. And they were good. It's amazing that people I've seen look back and say, or they'll, they'll say, you know, that person, I, we always overlooked that person. But I'll tell you, that person in our, our church, our, our organization, they got, I, I was against them. I was trying to rifle them. But I'll say one thing for them. They were always ethical. They were always good. See, sometimes time validates when we do it right. The fruit comes out eventually. And, and God says, let wisdom take its course. Do the right thing and wait for the fruit. It shows no favoritism. It shows no favoritism. That's earlier in James where he says, remember, this is chapter two, I think, where he said, don't buddy up to people who can give you, they're rich, they can give you money, and you're good to people who can give you a promotion because they're powerful, or they're popular so they can give you fame, and you overlook the people who are poor or difficult or ugly. Don't show favoritism to people around you. Be good to everyone the same way. Be even. Show no favoritism. Wisdom shows no favoritism and is always sincere. He starts by saying it's pure, ends by saying it's sincere. Again, it's the same on the inside as the outside. There's not a stained glass masquerade hiding what's really there. Now, moving on. He says in verse 18, he closes this section, he closes this section in verse 18 by saying this. Those who are peacemakers, that word peacemakers is so good. Again, it goes back to earlier. I'm not trying to, we make peace when you do it my way. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make peace when you're at odds with me. I'll make peace. A soft answer can turn away wrath. But also, I'm going to make peace between people who are at odds. If Joe and John are mad at each other, I'm not saying, yeah, Joe, I'm with you. Yeah, John, I hear what you're saying. I'm over there saying, hey, Joe, I think John's a good guy. I think he really does like you. Hey, John, I heard Joe said something good about you the other day. I want to put myself in harm's way to get those guys back together, not try to be the winner while they fight. I want to be a peacemaker. I want to do the hard work of, of bringing peace around me. You know what Jesus said about this? Jesus, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, once said, blessed are the peacemakers. 
for they shall be called the children of God. And James now says those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and will reap a harvest of righteousness. That's what happens. Now, I'm gonna, I got a lot here. I'm going to kind of move down the line quickly because it's getting late. So let me um, move this practical for a few minutes. I want to give you a statement that's kind of long. I'm going to give it to you in three chunks, add to it each time. Because James is talking about wisdom today. I want you to remember this statement, and I'll give it to you, and I'll expand it as we go for a few minutes here. We'll be done. Uh, let's start this way. Wisdom. Wisdom requires us to be honest with ourselves. We've got to start somewhere. Wisdom, James is telling us that wisdom requires us to be honest with ourselves. If we're not careful, we'll be so busy fooling others, we'll fool ourselves. We'll fool ourselves in thinking if others think I'm okay, I must be okay. But I think that all of us would do good to step once in a while. And, and by the way, have some quiet time. This was, again, this... We don't take enough quiet time. There's always a TV playing. There's always a stereo. There's always a radio playing music. There's always a podcast. How much do we just turn all the noise off and just get alone and say, how's it going? Talk to God. Think things through. Meditate. Wisdom requires us to be honest with ourselves. Here's a question of introspection we all ought to ask ourselves often. Why do I do what I do? Why do I do the bad things I do? Why do I do that? What's going on inside that causes me to do that? The good things that I do, why do I do those? Is it because of what it gets me or how it makes me feel or look? Why do I, why do, I do what I do? And then we ought to expand the question a little longer. Why do I do what I do really? <laughs> That's an important add-on. Because if we're not careful, we'll miss. We fool ourselves so much, we've got to ask ourselves, why do I do what I do? No, really. Really. And I just think that that quiet space is so important to have in our lives. Wisdom requires us to be honest with ourselves. Let me expand that statement. Ready? Wisdom requires us to be honest with ourselves and honest with God. Now that seems almost silly because in theory we know that we can't lie to God because he knows. But sometimes we kind of, we kind of just want to, we don't want to talk to him candidly. We're like, I can't tell God how I'm feeling. Well, it, why? It'll shock him. I can't tell God what I'm struggling with. He kind of knows. But when we come to God and say, God, you know, if I'm being honest, I know everyone else thinks I'm awesome or I, I got a lot of people fooled or maybe they don't think I'm I don't care what anyone thinks. God, the truth is I know and you know. I got to tell you, God, I am struggling with selfish ambition. I'm struggling with bitterness. I'm struggling with jealousy. I'm struggling with anger. I don't know why I'm angry all the time. I don't know what's driving me, God, but I just want to be honest with you. And you know what God welcomes that? You know why he welcomes that? Because everyone in your life who's in relationship with you just wants honesty, don't we? We don't want someone to tell us what they think. No one wants someone to tell them what they think they want to hear. We want people that are real and honest. And God's like, just be honest. I already know. Just come talk straight with me. God has to God, honestly, I'm struggling. And I'm not going to pretend to you like it's not happening. I'm, having, I, I'm angry all the time. I, or I got this going on. Or I got, I'm driven by this. I got some lust issues over here. I don't know what's going on. God, help. And James is, so, James is so encouraging because if you were with us at the beginning of this series, when we started the book of James, he mentions this very idea about coming to God for wisdom at the beginning of his letter. Remember? James 1 verse 5. If you need wisdom, he said, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. 
He will not rebuke you for asking. God will never chase you away. He'll never make you feel stupid. He'll never belittle you. He'll never dismiss you. God welcomes He's generous, and he says, man, listen, if you, you say, God, I'm trying. I don't know why I do. Why do I do what I do, really? I don't even know. God, help me. God, I'm going to come to you. Here's what's going on. Why help? And God's like, thank you. I, I want to be a part of the story. I want to be a part of your journey. Let's work on that. And it might not be a magic fix one day. It might be three steps forward, two steps back. But let's take this journey. God says, I'm right here. Come to me. You need wisdom. We're talking about wisdom today. Let me give you my statement for the day in the longest form. Wisdom requires us to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with God, and to be honest with each other. To be honest with each other. This is the thing we sometimes lack. This is where the stained glass masquerade comes in. We're afraid to be open because we're afraid it will hurt our ambitions. I have an ambition to become promoted. I have an ambition to get a title handed to me. I have a ambition to get an honest, it's vulnerable. And that might be fine in the world or, or whatever, I don't know. It's not good in the church. It's not good in Jesus followers to come to church and try to, to not be honest for those reasons. In fact, usually, and you know this, you're with me every week mostly. Here's the thing. We usually look back at things that we've already studied, like James 1.5. We're going to do something unusual right now. We're going to look ahead. At the end of James's letter, James makes a statement that we're not even there yet. And I'm not trying to steal our future thunder here because there's a whole lot more to what I'm about to show you than what we're going to see today. There's a whole bigger conversation going on around it. But I want to sneak peek ahead to one thing James says later in James chapter 5 and verse 16. He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. See, this is where it's real. This is where we get in relationship with each other. We get out of rows and into circles, into small groups, where we get in coffee shops with someone across the table, where we go to someone's house and we just do life together. We say, hey, and we be tell the truth. Because when we confess and we, and we pray, we help and we bring healing to our lives. We fix the inside instead of trying to fix the inside with a fake outside. Take down the facade. I told a story last hour that was not my intention, but I'm going to tell it to you again here. I think I have time, barely. Um, it was a story. I, I heard a pastor being interviewed in some podcast I listened to a year or two ago now. And this pastor was one of these guys. He was younger than me, probably mid-30s. Um, he, he, and he really had a kind of a, he had a church with a cool name. I can't remember, something like the porch or something like that. I don't know what it was. Something like, like I, I would have, wish I would have thought of that, you know. But anyhow, he, 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 reached, he had a lot of young people, a lot of young adults were in his ministry. He was really doing a great job. And he was being interviewed with a pastor friend of mine. And he told a story about, about something he did one Sunday. He came to his large church. And, and he had, um, when he was younger, struggled with um, pornography and lust. And he had done better. He had been serving God. He's a pastor. But he had a bad week. And he, he, he used the technology he had to look at things he shouldn't have looked at and, and browse what he shouldn't browse and see what he shouldn't see. And then he tried to get behind him to pray for Sunday. And he got to the preach on Sunday and he, he got on the stage and he put his Bible aside and said, folks, I don't even think I can preach to you today until I, until I get something off my chest and off my heart. He said, I don't feel like I can bring God's word to you sincerely until I tell you I've had a bad week. 
I've, I've fallen into some lustful habits. I've fallen into some, I've looked at some things I shouldn't look at, and my eyes have seen things I shouldn't have seen in lust. And, and this is uh, something that happened, and I just think I need to be transparent because I'm going to preach God's word. And he said, I just want to ask you to pray for me. I've asked God to forgive me, and I know he does, but I want to ask my church to, I want you to know, I want you to pray with me and for me. And then he said that he went to preach a sermon. He prayed right then for himself, and he preached a sermon. And at the end, they had people coming to the front, praying at the front, weeping. He said that whole week and beyond, he had people lining up to meet with him, coming to him saying, Pastor, I can't believe what you said. I have been so afraid to tell anybody because I felt like it was just me, but I am struggling with the same thing. I didn't know who to come to. But, and he said revival broke out in that church like he had never imagined could happen. And so he began to be real and honest and get fixed addressing things that needed to be addressed because someone had the courage to stand up and say, facade down, stained glass masquerade put aside. Uh, I want to confess what's going on inside. And everyone else said, me too. Not maybe that exact thing, maybe something else. You see, at some point when we confess our sins, not only does it help us have accountability, it helps everyone else know it's okay to confess and pray for each other and find healing. And that's what it's supposed to be like. Not this show. Not this fake thing where people come in and they put on a show. It's not supposed to be that. Because we only hurt ourselves and we hurt others with a, with a measure that's not even true. And so, back to that last statement, if I could again, Jody. Jody. Wisdom requires us. God's wisdom, true wisdom, requires us to be honest with ourselves. What's going on? How am I doing, really? To be honest with God. To be honest with each other. Now, if we do that, if we do that, then James 3.18 told us, James 3.18 says, those who are peacemakers, blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. And as we serve the kingdom of God and spread his good news like we were told to do, to preach the good news to everyone, as we do that, we'll see God's kingdom move forward. But listen carefully, the kingdom moves ahead when I'm not trying to get ahead. The kingdom moves ahead when I'm not trying to get ahead, okay? I mean, listen, it's an investment that will pay off not just in eternity, but now as well when I embrace the wisdom that comes from God. And so in closing today, I'll say this. Wisdom knows that the future is determined by the choices of today. That if I choose today to put on a, a spiritual-looking facade but have selfish ambition or jealousy or bitterness or anger or a thousand other things in my life that I'm hiding from my, you and me and everybody, and I choose to operate that way, my future will be determined because eventually the bad inside comes to the outside. But if we can step back and, and do what Jesus says, what James said to do to Jesus' followers in wisdom and address what needs to be addressed, do the, the work that wisdom calls us to do internally. Those choices of today will determine tomorrow as well. Wisdom knows that the future is determined by the choices of today. And it's not about what you think of me today or anyone thinks about you or me today. It's what God knows. It's what I know. It's time to do the inward work that wisdom calls us to do. And these are the transition verses to close out chapter 3. And next week we'll start the last two chapters of James. But for today, let's seek God's wisdom.